So Matthew chapter 22, and I'll read from verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come, so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for... uh, uh, the parables that Jesus told, thank you for um, the ways you've spoken spoken to us through them in the last few weeks. Um, and I pray that as we look at uh, this parable of the wedding banquet, Lord, that you would speak again, that you would um, help us to perceive our own hearts correctly um, and where it's needed, help us to, to repent, to look to Jesus uh, and to, to put our faith in him. Amen. Are there any uh, fans of Dragon's Den here? Show me, give me a hand. Oh, there's none. Oh, there we go. Half of one. I'm a bit like that as well. Uh, I'm not a super fan. I don't watch every episode, but I do like watching it from time to time. Um, If you don't know, Dragon's Den is kind of like a a reality TV program of sorts where uh, someone um, who has a business or an idea for a business um, comes before a, a panel of four successful entrepreneurs known as dragons. Um, and then the dragons, uh, they, they get a couple of minutes to pitch their business idea to the dragons, and then the dragons kind of uh, drill down with questions into the business to, to find out uh, more, so whether they think it'll be a success or not. And if they like it, they offer to invest their time and money into the business to, to see it grow for a share of the business. Now, sometimes you watch it and you see kind of a total car crash, Uh, where the dragons uncover the fact that the business is making a huge loss or has has like some fundamental problem with it or or kind of could be easily copied or something like that. Other times it's it's exciting, you watch it and you see kind of light bulbs going on above the dragon's heads. You see the the pound sides flipping around the eyes like Scrooge McDuck um, and, and, and you get them all trying to get a piece of the business. Now, one of the things that the dragons often focus on, even if they don't use this term, is the, the USP of the business, which stands for unique selling proposition or, or unique selling point. In other words, what they're focusing on is what is it that makes this business better than or different to the competition? What is the specific benefit that this business has? And how clearly are people able to see that? That's the USP. And for the dragons, the the business has to have something that makes it stand out, or they just don't invest in the business. 
when you think about USPs, kind of some classics might spring to mind for different businesses. So since 1925 until about a month ago, John Lewis had a very clear OSP. They, they, they said, we are never knowingly undersold. And, and that sounds a bit clunky, clunky to our ears now, but the promise was that if you found something that they were sell selling for cheaper somewhere else, then they would refund the difference. It was a very successful USP for them for a long time. Or uh, Domino's, the pizza business. For a long time, their promise was fresh hot pizza delivered to your door in 30 minutes or less, or it's free. Now, that's not snappy, but it's attractive to people, isn't it, who want good takeaway pizza, who want it quickly, and who don't want the risk of it arriving late, and they end up pay paying a lot of money for uh, cold pizza. Um, you know what you're getting, and a lot of people wanted it, and Domino's did very well out of it. Um, in business, a USP is a powerful thing. But I want us to think for a minute about what Christianity's USP is. Now, I realise that there are lots of ways that that question can be unhelpful, so we won't run too far with it, but um, let's just run with it for now. If, if someone asks you the question, what is Christianity's USP, unique selling point, unique selling proposition, how would you answer? What does Christianity offer? Let me give you just a few seconds to think about how you would answer that question. What is Christianity's USP? It's interesting to think about, isn't it? What's also interesting to think about is what other people might say to that question. Think about some of your friends or families or colleagues or whoever who aren't Christians and, and maybe haven't had much exposure to church. I reckon many of those wouldn't have an answer. Many of them wouldn't see Christianity as having anything good to offer at all, of any benefit to them. I might be wrong about this, but I reckon a lot of people's impression of Christianity is that it is outdated and morally questionable. For most people, they think that becoming a Christian would mean wasting time on boring religious activities that, where you're made to feel either guilty or else superior to everyone else, which is not much of a USP. And churches undoubtedly bear a lot of responsibility for that impression that people have. And we should examine, examine ourselves here in Grace Church to see if there are any ways that we contribute to that impression. And the reason we should be concerned if people think that about Christianity is because it flies in the face of what the Bible says Christianity is all about. It's pretty much the exact opposite, in fact. We're looking at a parable today. As Ben said earlier, parables are simply stories that Jesus told that have a, a deeper meaning than what you see at face value. And today's parable starts with a king preparing a wedding banquet for his son. And the king sends out his servants to invite others in for this wedding banquet. And what's described is a feast of epic proportions. Think um, about the, the, the best party, about the best feast that you've ever been to, and double it. That's the feast that we're talking about. This is a feast to celebrate the wedding of a prince. We're told that oxen, plural, and cattle, plural, are slaughtered for this feast. This is abundant. It's a huge party. It's a vast celebration. 
Now, if you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you might know that when, when, when the wedding supper of the Son is talked about, it's often talking about that day in the future where Jesus, the Son of God, and his bride, the church, will be united in a perfect new creation, and there will be a feast to end all feasts, the best party, the, the best celebration that you could possibly imagine. That's often what it's talking about in the Bible. That's something wonderful about Christianity. That's one of the USPs. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And that's because we know that when we get to that feast in the new creation, we'll be in a world that is free from sin. We'll be in a world, crucially, where there will be no more rejecting God, no more spurning him. But that's not what's going on in this story. Because later in the parable, there are people at the feast who don't belong there, who are expelled from it. And so the feast that's being described here isn't that kind of wonderful new creation banquet at the wedding between Jesus and his church. Because no one will be rejected from that feast. I think what's actually going on here is an invitation to become a Christian. an invitation to become one of God's people. And when you realise that, it is what you see Jesus is claiming. Jesus is claiming that an invitation to become a Christian is an invitation to a feast. Now, that's not a literal feast. We do like food here at Grace Church. We do have a lot of it. But I don't think that's what Jesus is in mind when he was talking about this. Jesus um, is using the picture of a wedding feast because... To many of his listeners, and actually to many of us, some of the, the happiest, some of the most joy-filled experiences that we will ever have had have been at that kind of occasion, wedding receptions. And so his point is that the experience of being a Christian is meant to be like being at a feast. When you're invited to become a Christian, when you accept that invitation, your experience should be like being at a feast. That's the USP. Is that what your impression is of being a Christian? Is that what comes to mind for you? And I want to push that just a little bit further because um, when Jesus describes it as being like a feast, he isn't just plucking that idea out of the air. In choosing this picture in his parable of the feast, he's drawing from a rich tapestry of imagery from the Old Testament uh, that is woven throughout. So let me just read to you um, a few verses from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament where, G where the, a feast is described. So in Isaiah chapter 25, we see um, the description of this feast that is available to us through Jesus. And just listen to these words. He says, On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Swallow up death, wipe away tears, remove disgrace. That is what the feast involves. 
what is on offer when we accept the invitation to follow Jesus is our greatest enemy, death, being defeated. What's on offer is our disgrace being taken. What's on offer is our tears being wiped away, sadness and suffering. That's what we're invited to feast on. It sounds pretty appealing, doesn't it? But there's more. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 55. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Here's what that's saying. As human beings, we have deep desires. Desires for meaning and love and hope and acceptance amongst other things. And we spend much of our lives chasing after those things. And we do that in all sorts of ways. And we do it at great cost of time and, and resources and emotional energy. But our desires are never fully satisfied. But here's what Jesus is offering. He's saying that those hungers can be satisfied. The truest, deepest uh, hungers that humans have can be satisfied. And not just kind of a bit, not just kind of taking the edge off that. Our desires will be satisfied with a feast, is what he says. Let me read those verses to you again, of this feast that is ours for free, the feast that's on offer in Christianity. He says, come all you you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. The invitation to be a Christian is an invitation to have the deepest, truest human desires satisfied abundantly. It's an invitation to our greatest enemy, death, being defeated. It's an invitation to remove our disgrace and guilt and to find forgiveness and restored relationship with the God who made us and loved us and loves us still. That's the feast. But to understand this parable more fully, we need to understand that the invitation to that feast, historically, was first of all offered to a specific nation, the people of Israel. That's the story of the Old Testament, God's gracious invitation. And the Old Testament story of that invitation is what's being kind of recounted in verses 1 to 4 of our parable today. Let me just read that again, verses 1 to 4. You might want to have a look at that. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. The people of Israel were invited, but the story of the Old Testament is that over and over again, God invited them through the prophets to come to him and enjoy the feast, but over and over again, people kept on doing what verse 3 said. They refused to come. 
And for those of you who are interested in grammar, I won't do a show of hands because, again, I don't think there'll be many. But for those of you who are interested in grammar, the tense there is imperfect. And what that means is that this wasn't a kind of one-time offer and refusal. It means that it was a continuous offer and a continual refusal to come, despite that ongoing invitation. And that was Israel's story. But the rejection wasn't a one-size-fits-all thing. It didn't look the same for everyone. Just look with me from verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. You see, we see two types of rejection there. On the one hand, there's that outright hostility against the king. Some of those who, who heard and received the invitation reacted violently. They actively opposed the king, killing his servants. But then there's another type of rejection that we see there. Some people, when they received the invitation, rejected it simply through indifference. Did you see that? Verse 5, they, they paid no attention and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. It was as though the king wasn't even there. They, they just ignored him. Now, we'll drill down a bit more into those two types of rejection in a minute. But before we do that, I just want us to keep going with the story because I, I think we see a third kind of rejection too. So when the first group of people, those Israelites, um, were invited, they show that they're not interested. And so the invitation is spread much more widely. And that's what we see from verse 8. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So, so here's what's going on there. For, for thousands of years, God reached out to his people, Israel. They were invited to the feast, but they took their position as God's special people for granted. And so God flung open the doors and he invited all, the whole world. And so if you're here today and you're not an Israelite, you're not a Jew, this is good news for you. The reason you are invited, the reason the invitation to the feast is on your doormat today is because of this. Because the second round of invitations went out. That was God's plan all along, actually. It was always his plan to, to fling open the doors, to, to give everyone access. So in come the guests to the wedding. But then look what happens. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Now, at weddings in those days, it was customary for, for everyone to come to the wedding wearing white. It was a mark of respect. It was a sign that you were celebrating with the bride and groom. Now, that would be a total social faux pas today if everyone turned up in white. The, the bride would be furious. Um, but not so then. It was expected that you did. So here we are at the wedding. And then the king notices someone who's, who's come in, but he hasn't bothered to dress for the party. There he is at the feast, enjoying the food, joining in, just like they're part of things. But actually, through not wearing these white clothes, he's shown massive dishonour to the king. And he's showing that 
He's not actually interested in honouring the king and celebrating his, son, his son's marriage. So the king confronts him. And the man knows that he can't defend his actions. He knows fine well what he's done. It says he's speechless. He's got no defence. And, and in this man, we see a third form of rejection. Remember the, the first two we've seen so far? You had the people that were openly hostile to the king. You had those who rejected just by being indifferent, kind of cracking on with their lives. But this third type of rejection is more subtle. This person seems to be going along with things. He's there, he's part of the feast, he's joining in, he's eating. But in their heart, expressed through what they're wearing, they're rejecting the king. And, and it's here now that we need to let this story come down through the centuries into 21st century Hartlepool. Because here's the thing. This is a parable. It's not actually about a random king and a wedding and a son. The king is God, and we are invited to the feast of his son. We're invited to know Jesus and in him to find forgiveness and satisfaction and joy and life and disgrace removed and all those things that we've talked about. You are invited to that. That's a stunning thing. It's, it's an immense privilege. And when you grasp how good that invitation is and it comes to us for free, it becomes inconceivable to think that anyone would reject it. And yet we still do. You see all three forms of this rejection today. And so we're going to kind of think a bit more about how we see it today. But as we think about them, I want each of us here today to think carefully. Examine your own heart. Take a few minutes to just kind of ponder these forms of rejections and make sure that you are not one of these people rejecting the invitation. Remember the first type of rejection. first one we saw was in verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Could this be you? Here's what it looks like. You, you're just cracking on with life. You're plodding on with your job or maybe pursuing your career with gusto. You might be caring for your family or doing school or, or uni or, or whatever it is. Life seems fine. You might have a deep sense of missing something. You may feel that you have longings that are unfulfilled, or you may not. You might have buried those feelings, but life just goes on for you. And here's the crucial thing. It goes along without reference to Jesus, without a second thought to the God who made you and loves you, without even thinking about the one who invites you to the feast. It's as though he isn't there. Your life might look perfectly respectable compared to other people no one would think of you as a bad person or anything like that but what jesus is saying here in this parable is that he's inviting you to something more than what you've got to a feast and however good however respectable your life may look you're still rejecting his invitation you're still missing out on a feast Maybe today is the day that you need to think again. Maybe today is the day that you need to look at what you're invited to, what by default you're rejecting by just going along with life. Or it might be that you know already what you're missing out on. And it might be that today is the day where you come to Jesus and you say, yes, I want to be part of this. That's the first type of rejection. But the second type is much more obvious. Verse 6. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. 
What we see in these people is an active, willful rejection and opposition to God and his messengers. Many of us will know people like this. Many of us might have even been like this ourselves at some point. This group of people are those who are dead set against Jesus. It could be that this even describes you right now. This kind of person mocks the very idea of Christianity. They may go out of their way to make Christians feel small. Some in this category would pose intellectual arguments against the credibility of Christianity. Others would simply deride it, refusing to give it the time of day, because to them it's just too ridiculous. In some parts of the world, they might even kill Christians. But what Jesus is saying again is this. The invitation comes to you if you're in this group. The feast is real and it's available. But here's the thing. The reality is that people in those two categories are probably not going to be here today. They're either too busy getting on with life or too against Jesus to, to ever dream of coming to Grace Church. But the third category of person, the third way of rejecting, is where we really need to pay attention because there's a strong chance that there's one or more people sitting in this room who fall into this camp. The third person in the parable was part of the Christian crowd. They were there at the feast, seeming to be part of it, joining in. But the king saw them and, and saw that they weren't wearing the wedding clothes. They didn't care about res respecting the king, about honouring him. They weren't there for the king. It's not about the king. It's not about his son. They're there for some other reason. Maybe in the story they just wanted the food. It sounded pretty good. But what might that look like today? Well, for the most part, it's people who are coming along, doing everything that Christians are doing, joining in with the activities. But if you scratch beneath the surface, you realise that they're just going along for the ride. There's no honour for the son, no respect for the king of the feast, no desire to live for him or worship him. It might be that they're there because they like community. They like being around the people in, in Grace Church. Know why, but <laughs> they might like having a, a, a group of people around them that they know is for them, who, who will love them, a group that they can depend on, maybe even a group that they can get involved with and, and help and serve. They're here for the community, but not for Jesus. Maybe they like the singing or, or the feeling that they get from being at a church gathering. They might be there for the ways that it benefits their kids, or it might just be that it's something they've always done. Their family were Christians, they went to church, they'd been brought up doing it, and so they just carry on doing it. They can talk the talk, they can fit right in, but when push comes to shove, the thing that it's not about for them is the king or his son. It's not about Jesus. It's not about coming to him and responding to him and knowing him. But here's the problem. At the end of the day, all they really have is religion or community or whatever it is. They want the feast without the feast giver. But there's no feast without the feast giver. Because knowing him is one of the, the great pr privileges of the feast. Receiving the, 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 the removal of our disgrace and, and the life and the hope is, is what the feast is all about. They're at the wedding celebration, but in the wrong clothes. 
And so here's what I want to say. If you see yourself in any of those three categories, then Jesus, through this parable, has given you a really strong warning today. He is tolerating your rejection now. He's offering the invitation to you. But one day, the doors to the feast will be closed to you. And outside the feast, without Jesus, with no hope of entering, is not a place that you want to be. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that right now we live in a world where we get to experience many of the benefits of God's goodness and grace through what's called his common grace. He still kindly causes the rain and the sun to fall on, on all people. We experience good and beautiful things in this world as we enjoy good gifts from God, every single one of us, whether we're rejecting him or whether we're enjoying the feast. But one day... This world, as it is, will be wrapped up. And on that day, there will be a new creation. And all of those who have accepted the invitation will be there, enjoying a feast that we can't even begin to imagine. Enjoying it all the more, in richer and fuller ways than, than, we, than we even begin to imagine now. We've just got a taste of that now. But for those who haven't accepted, it won't be good. That's what Jesus is saying. In, in this parable, Jesus uses pretty extreme language to describe that. He talks of darkness and weeping and gnashing teeth. Now, they may not be literal descriptions. They may be. But, but regardless, Jesus uses really strong language because he wants us to see that one day there will be no opportunity to be at that feast. And life outside the feast will be terrible. That's why he uses that language. It will be a life removed from all that is good, removed from the gracious provision of a good God. And if all that is good in this world comes from God, then if he removes that, then it's not worth thinking about what life will be like without that. Now, I know all that sounds pretty grim, but this is where Jesus goes with this parable. And he goes there for one simple reason. It's because he doesn't want that to be our faith. He wants to warn us against it. The overwhelming message of the parable is an invitation. He wants us to come. He wants us to be part of the feast. It's open to all. It's open to you, whatever's going on in your life. And so let's just end where we began. What Jesus is inviting, to, inviting us to is a feast. The call to follow Jesus, the call to accept Christianity isn't what many people naturally think. It's not, uh, it's not to a life of drudgery and boring, hypocritical, morally questionable religion. And if this church, or if any church has ever given that impression, please wipe it from your head and listen to Jesus. Because in him and in knowing him, we experience a feast. The invitation is to, to life and wholeness and satisfaction and joy and freedom and forgiveness from all of the things that we are ashamed of so that we don't need to hide anymore. It's an invitation to know and to enjoy the God who made you and loves you and knows you. He loves you with a passion, with an intensity that we can't begin to imagine. That's what you're invited to. And that invitation remains open to every single one of us today. So don't reject it. Come to him. Join the feast. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for the invitation that is held out to us. Thank you that we are invited to a feast. We don't deserve that, Father. We know that we have rejected you. We know that we continue to reject you, um, even those of us who are Christians. But thank you that you invite us back and that you forgive us and that in your grace you, 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 you let us feast on all that is good in your son. That, you, that we receive joy and hope and forgiveness. That our disgrace is removed. And I pray for anyone here today, as we've looked at this parable, anyone here who, who recognises this rejection that, that is laid out in themselves, be that a kind of just going along with life, be it an, a willful, active rejection of you, or be it kind of they've been coming along here and part of things, but haven't actually come to you, haven't actually come to know your son and accepted the invitation to be one of his people. I pray for those people that they would do that today, that they would come to you, that they would accept the invitation and begin to have a taste of the feast that is on offer.